Okay. Here we go, here we go. I, it's, uh, you got the Bruzek one on? There you go. Okay, stop having so much fun and try to remember this is church, okay? You're supposed to be grumpy and uh, unwelcoming and... I'm oh, just kidding, okay. Paying any attention anyway, they don't care. Here we go, here we go. A um, couple, uh, couple of things, a couple of things, yeah, that doesn't matter. It's probably better you're just having a little fun, okay? But you people with the cards and dice out, come on. Still the sanctuary. Just kidding. It's the joy group, yes, right. It's always the joy group. Um, couple, I, gosh, I had about four things to tell you. Now, I'm, I'm, now I can't remember what they were. Uh, saddest thing of the day is uh, John Marty's death uh, last, the, early this morning. I was just with Jeanette the last hour. Um, kind of you who are ticking your schedules, I think that it will be... 11 a.m. this Thursday, June the 1st, okay? 11 a.m. this Thursday, June the 1st for the funeral. We'll have lunch downstairs, uh, all you lunch folks who are on deck. And I've already talked to Krista Kaspari, so she would be the point person. And then to the cemetery after that. So, okay, everybody teed up for that? Everybody okay? Thurs Thursday, June 1st. Um, what's the other thing? Then... Uh, you know, I can't remember, I like six things. But I do remember that Arthur Just is here. Uh, this is a great joy. Great to have him here back again. He's helped us out a lot this year. We're grateful for that. Um, since he was here to preach, there was uh, always the impulse to have him teach Bible study. And then when I looked at the text, there was an extraordinary impulse. Uh, might have been the evil sort that were in the sermon that one's not supposed to give way to, I'm not sure. But we're glad to have him back. So we'll have a half an hour on First Peter 3, and then we'll see what the next thing. Could you pray for us, and then we'll go? Yes. Thank you so much. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we gather on this seventh Sunday of Easter, we ask that you be with us by your Spirit to give us wisdom and to give us strength as we fight the evil one. Give us the gifts that you have promised, the gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Well, Pastor has already told you that um, in inviting me to teach Bible class, he has given me a challenge here. Um, even though I teach New Testament, that doesn't mean I know everything about everything in the New Testament. And 1 Peter is not an epistle I know much about. Um, I, there's a student here, and there might have been one or two. This, this spring, we start, we've started a new curriculum, and we have a course now called Theologia Baptism, and one of the lectures, it was not done by me, but one of the lectures was on 1 Peter as a baptismal homily. I don't know if that has come up at all in the study of 1 Peter, but I think it's a very interesting theory and one worth exploring. <clears throat> it's a wonderful epistle, and um, in getting ready for this Bible class this week, I, um, I learned that studying scripture is a good thing. Um, I, uh, I learned a lot about 1 Peter this week. I wish I could learn more. But one of the things I learned, and um, I didn't know this, and, I, and I, I think my Greek is pretty good, but boy, Peter is really hard Greek. I couldn't believe how difficult these seven verses are. He doesn't use verbs. I mean, at least there's, like, in the seven verses, there are three main verbs, which is of always interest to me. Now, that may not mean much to you, but in order to translate something, it's helpful to have verbs, you know? 
Verbs, verbs get you to where you need to be going, so he doesn't use verbs. Now, you wonder why that is, and I, and I don't know, but this is a very, um, is a very complex piece of, of Greek. Um, what I want to do, we only have a half hour, so I want to give you the big picture here. And I'll, I'll be very honest, when I started reading this, I, I said, I thought that Scott and Josh liked me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then, and then I, and I'll be very honest, when I read this, I said, holy cow, maybe the critics are right. Maybe the Bible is kind of antiquated and <laughs> out of touch with reality. But, you know, if you study a little bit, you begin to get in underneath things. Um, I, I want you to look at the bottom of the page there. I'm going to read the text in a minute with you. And I think there's some issues we have to face right away before we look at the text. First of all, we are dealing with a patriarchal society, and it's very important. And that was the character not only of Israel, but it was the character of the Mediterranean world. And I'm talking here about the Roman Empire, I'm talking about the Greek culture. I'm essentially talking about early Christians as well. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The Bible is a patriarchal book, as you know. But there were other impulses, and we were just, Linda and I, in Egypt in March, and we entered into a culture in which it was not a patriarchal society. The ISIS cult, cult there is, I don't want to say it's matriarchal, but there's a, there is an impulse there in that whole culture of equality between men and women, even at the time of the scriptures. But what I think we have to recognize as we read this is that the culture in which this was written assumes the secondary social status of women, that's assumed, and, and they had, I think this is important to note, Hellenistic is the word for Greek culture. The Hellenistic culture had these catalogs, these, these instructions on how to run a household. So Peter is, in a sense, echoing that. I don't know if that's come up already in your Bible class, but that is something that is very clear. And, and I can give you, uh, there's a wonderful commentary here that gives you all kinds of data in the first century of these kinds of household you know, instructions. So there's a, there's a sense of this in the culture. Secondly, it assumed the submissive paradigm for, for society in general, and slaves and women being two examples. So that, that's, a, that's a kind of a cultural context you have to have in mind as you read this. Then the second thing, this is the second big bullet, that 1 Peter 3, and we have to ask two questions, is it reflective of historical and social customs of the ancient world alone, and therefore not you know, pertaining to us today that we can completely kind of, you know, rationalize this away in terms of its being a historical and social context? Or is it reflective of an absolute and abiding order of creation to use language that our church uses established by God? Those, are the, those may not be the only alternatives, but they are certainly ones for a half-hour Bible study that are worth thinking about. And then on the next page, if you flip it over, context is everything. And that's how you can sometimes begin to get in under what, the, what he's saying. You know, I, I don't know First Peter enough to really get into his mind. You know, when you study somebody enough, you begin to be able to do that. But, but I've studied the scripture enough, studied texts enough, to see that there are some things going on here that are pretty interesting. Now, I am citing here, I, I, it's in quotations, because I'm using his language. I wanted you to see his language. This is a wonderful commentary. I don't know if, if those of you are really into commentaries. This is the Anchor Bible. They're usually pretty good. This guy used to be a Missouri Synod Lutheran, John H. Elliott. Studied First Peter in 1957 with Martin Charlemagne. I was mentioned at the Pastor Schlecht at the St. Louis Seminary. So we kind of know him. 
And this is his language, and a lot of this is his language. He has, he, and here's, here's his, his outline, and it's the top of the second page. Honorable subordinate conduct. Now, see, I, don't, I wouldn't use subordinate, I'd use submissive, but subordinate conduct in civil and domestic realms. That's what he quotes this section, 213 to 312. And I think you just studied the civil realm, which has to do with slaves, and now we're in the domestic realm, excuse me, the civil realm, uh, was, was, uh, was how he began this, verses 13 to 17. And then the domestic realm begins with slaves. And here's what's interesting to me as I was looking at this. He goes from slaves, and then he has this little interlude on the suffering of Christ, and then wives, husbands, and then exhortations to all. Now why that interlude? He could have put that anywhere. Um, it's like a sermon, you know, you write a sermon, where do you put the gospel? Now that you have computers, you can splice it in and out anywhere you want. I mean, this is his little thing on the suffering servant of, of, of Jesus, and it's one of the most explicit references in the entire New Testament to Isaiah 52 and 53. Why does he put it here, between slaves and wives? Interesting. Keep that in mind. So the context there is important. And then after we read the text and we look at its structure a little bit, I want to go to the... the, the the three bullets there, which hopefully will give you a sense of, of, um, of what I think is going on there. Now, let's look at the text, okay? I'm very interested in the structure of texts. My students know that. And this is what is called a chiasm. It's a very simple structure. You see the A and the A1. Those are balanced. He starts by talking about wives be subject to your husbands. And then in 5C there, by submitting to their husbands, you see it's the same language. So he begins and ends with submission uh, when he's talking about the wives. And then in the middle there, he's talking about their conduct, or really, to use the language that he uses, their adornment. I shouldn't actually say conduct, because conduct is associated with the submission, but he's talking about their adornment. So it's, it's a very, very carefully structured text, very carefully structured. And then only one verse on husbands, verse 7, where we have that delightful language showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. <laughs> I'm glad my weaker vessels are here with me today, uh, Abby and Linda. Um, but anyway, that we'll have to get to that in a minute. But anyway, this is, this is how it's structured. So he has, he has six verses on wives, one verse on husbands, and um, I, I think you'll see within the context of this culture, this is an extraordinary statement to say about women, really. Now let's read it. And I think, how do you do it here? Do I read it? Do I read it? Okay. Um, and I, what I've done is I've, I've done kind of a grammatical um, rendition here within this, what is called the chiasm, this structure. So just, just follow along and then we'll talk about it. Likewise, and that likewise is everything. That likewise points you back to what was said before. Is it likewise in reference to the slaves? Or is it likewise in reference to Christ or slaves and Christ? That's that likewise. The whole text stands on likewise. What is he referring to? Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, obviously, the ones not obeying the word are the husbands, not the wives. 
Now, that, look, at, look, at the, look at the main verbs there. They should be in dark. You might not see them, but be subject that they may be one. Okay? One over to the faith. Um, by the conduct of their wives, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. And here's examples of it. The braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, and here's what the imperishable beauty is, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now here's, here's a, um, a reference now to the past. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And now back to the beginning. By submitting to their husbands, as Sarah, here's the example, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good, maybe not the best translation, but okay, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, is a very important part of this. Then, notice it's another likewise, same word, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, and these are all subordinate clauses to, to illustrate what living with your wives is, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are, and this is a key passage here, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered, and those prayers are, of course, that they may be one, Without a word by the conduct, they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay? See why this is <laughs> a challenge? This is a, this is a text, I'll tell you. Now, flip over. <laughs> flip over. Here are some of the questions that I think you might want to wrestle with your pastor next week on. <laughs> see, there's... There's a way to, to get your, your piece of flesh here. But I, but I think these are really good. I mean, I don't know if they're all questions, but these are good things. Why do wives receive more attention than husbands? That's a good question. And, and I think if you look at the Hellenistic household codes, husbands usually are kind of given more instructions and wives are, are really put down on a, on a lower level because of the character of this society. But here they're really raised up and that would have alerted people to the fact that something is going on here that isn't within the t context of the culture. Now, th this is interesting. They are the more vulnerable partner, especially those married to non-believers. This is a cultural phenomenon. And, um, and, and this would have been perceived by the Christians as something to be concerned about within the context in which they lived. The, 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 the Greeks or the Romans may not have felt that, but certainly Christians did. And what you're going to see here is a Christianizing of these Hellenistic codes. Secondly, the conduct, this is very true, the conduct and character of women, and here's some of the things, uh, this is the language of Eliot, respect for order, chasteness, virtuous comportment, gentleness, doing what is right without fear, provides clear example for all believers, then men's conduct and character. Does anybody have a problem with that? I think that's true. Maybe one of the reasons these guys asked me to do this passage is because I now run a women's program at the seminary. And it's a women's program about deaconesses. And I think this is true. 
And I think this is a, a truth that is very, very clear in my mind, especially in terms of exhibiting the, and, and embodying the, the, the most fundamental characteristics of Christ, which are mercy, compassion, forgiveness, love, charity. I think you see that in women. Conduct and character of women, this is the third bullet, leading a holy life example for winning non-believers to the faith. Peter had a sense that women were winning people to the faith more than men were by means of their conduct, their moral, holy living. And this made them vulnerable. That is, I think, his point. Fourth, relation to God of women typical of the entire household of God. That is what Peter's doing here. He said, what you see in women is for all believers, for the entire household. So it's not just women, but men should be doing this as well, but we're going to use women as an example. And these are the three conclusions. I, I, didn't, I didn't put the conclusions thus, the thus, because I couldn't get it all on the same page. But thus, Christian wives are poignant paradigms and moral examples for all believers, that is the household of faith. Thus, Christian wives exemplify the vulnerable condition of all the faithful, which in this context of persecution, as you know, if you've heard, you know, you probably studied this already, this letter is written in the context of what could be severe persecution. And this last point is mine. I, I take total credit or blame for this one. Christian wives in their weakness represent the weakness of Christ who was crucified in weakness, 2 Corinthians 13, 4. And I'll, and I'll come to that at the very end. I'll hopefully leave you time for some questions. Maybe, hopefully not. <laughs> First Peter 3, next bullet, presumes First century, I missed a word there, first century views of women, but advances Christian beliefs that distinguish this instruction from pagan views. Now this is important, because here, if you were to compare the kind of the Hellenistic household codes and first Peter, what I'm gonna have here in these bullets is not in the Hellenistic codes. Reverence for God and concern for God's approval. And you can see the verses there. You can, you can take this home and look this up or just look at it now. Conversion of non-believers, solidarity of Christian wives, with the holy matriarchs of old, Sarah, status of Christian wives as, and this is so important, co-heirs with their Christian husbands of the grace of life. That would never, ever, ever, ever be said in first century patriarchal society. Christians are stepping way out there making that claim. Thus, first Peter three, this is, this is a conclusion of Eliot's, not mine. 1 Peter 3 is not a call to wifely submission, but an embodiment of the weakness of the cross, that's mine, through which women witness to others, husbands, about their faith through their holy conduct. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm always one in class never to be afraid of the hard passage, and the hard passage here is the weaker vessel. And when you look at the use of that word weaker, and vessel, of course, is just simply a reference to the human being, you'll see that, that it's, it's not, it, the references aren't that, that exciting about, okay, I'll just hear it. Here's, here's some way. Human beings as weak beings. The female gender is weak. This is used not in the scriptures, but in the, the culture. Physical infirmity, the weakness of human nature, that's in Hebrews. Weaker parts of the body, 1 Corinthians. Spiritual weakness or help, helplessness, that's in Romans. <clears throat> Moral sensitivity, 1 Corinthians. Weakness of the flesh in contrast to the power of the spirit. Economic weakness. This is all 
how that word is used in the culture and in the scriptures. But the final one, and this is the one that I think really makes a difference, is Christ crucified in weakness. Same word there, you see the reference above in 2 Corinthians 13, 4. Now, <clears throat> does the final bullet, what does weaker feminine vessel mean? And this is the only place in the scripture where the word feminine is used. Wives is used, but the actual word feminine, it's the only place where it's used. Um, I think it's true to say that in the first century, women were perceived as biologically weaker and more vulnerable. And you read the commentaries, you read anybody today, that's just been disproven. That's not true. Um, but that was, the, that was the assumption in the first century. Now, whether or not First Peter is making that assumption is, I think, the question. As I said, women as co-heirs of the grace of life indicates, and this is, this is interestingly, John Eliot's conclusion, that only physical weakness is referenced here. That women are physically weaker, and that's what Peter is saying, vulnerable, and, and, and you know, especially in light of the, the persecution. And finally, co-heirs of the grace of life demonstrates, and here Galatians 3, here Peter is consistent with Paul, demonstrates that there is unity in Christ with men and women rather than equality in the social realm. Now, this is perhaps something that, that critics will not um, affirm, but I think those of us you know, who are, take a more traditional reading, it's really hard to find in the New Testament any kind of egalitarianism. What we would say in our culture is probably the, one of the, I mean, individualism and I would say um, egalitarianism, just equality among everybody, is a driving force. That is, you just can't find that in the biblical culture. It just doesn't exist. There's a hierarchical structure, uh, patriarchal society. Um, I don't, wouldn't use the language of subordination, but the language of submission. I mean, there is, there is um, in, the, in the Trinity itself, there are, there's a hierarchy. They're equal, but they are, there's a hierarchy. So it's, it's, this is built into the biblical narrative. I think it's extremely intriguing, and I wish I had another half hour to explore with you why Peter puts the suffering of Christ between slaves and wives. And I think what he's saying here is that women are representing the sufferings and the weakness of Christ in their witness to the faith, in their vulnerability, in the culture in which they live. And I think, in light of the teachings of Jesus, women have been raised up, not to an egalitarian sta status, but certainly one that is much higher than anywhere else in the culture. And Peter is affirming, and, and in, a, in a kind of a pastoral way, saying they are a Christological example. They're getting persecuted because of their bearing witness through their conduct, and let's, let's you know, as the weaker vessels, as the more vulnerable ones in our culture, especially physically, we must be husbands, you know, and look at what he says. He doesn't say love like Paul does. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way and showing honor. I didn't get into that. For a, for a man to show honor to a woman, that's, that's, that's very unusual language there. And of course, heirs with you of the grace of life is just a remarkable statement. Anyway, that is as fast as you're going to get on First Peter. <laughs> Three, one to seven. We, I think how much time we have? Ten minutes for questions? Five, ten minutes? Any comments? Yes, sir. Your comment about uh, Christ's death for weakness. Yes. I see that Christ's death, while he may have 
Right. Well, thankfully, you're troubled not by me, but by the Apostle Paul. That's always a good thing. And, and I, you know, I mean, 1 Corinthians is, the, is the, the, again, and I'm not a 1 Corinthians scholar, but I mean, certainly 1 Corinthians is where we, we see the language of weakness. I want to get that. Where is it? I can't find it. 2 Corinthians, excuse me. 2 Corinthians 13, 4. And you know, it's 2 Corinthians where he talks about the cross as foolishness. Now, of course, he's speaking it from a worldly perspective. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will, we will live with him by the power of God. What, what I, how I would respond to you here is what Lutherans call the theology of the cross. That God works through nothingness, weakness, suffering, tragedy, death, to bring about his purposes. And from a human perspective, Christ is a pathetic, naked, weak man. And the world does not in any way value that. And that's what Paul is saying. But in that weakness, there is power. In that weakness is the glory of God. In that weakness is the gospel. So it's not by power and might. It's not by strength, it's by weakness. And Jesus in his weakness, Paul says the same thing of himself. When he comes to Galatians, he said, I was beaten, I was a mess, you wanted to spit me out of your mouth as if I smelled. I mean, he said, I was pathetic, and you embraced me in my weakness. And you saw in my weakness the gospel, and I preached the gospel to you in that weakness. It's not, it's not by, I mean, again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's up against these superlative apostles who are extraordinary rhetoricians. Extraordinary. Suave, cool, well-dressed, you know, they have the right tie, and they, they look good. You know, and Paul's this scrawny little guy, high-pitched voice, a, a pathetic human specimen, and yet the power of his gospel, because of it's the, it's the gospel, is at the heart of it. That's what this is about. And I think what Peter's doing is he's saying, in this cultural context, if you look at men and women, and especially if you look at the Hellenistic codes, women would be put in that weak category. Oh, yeah. Oh, I... And I think it's, it's more than that in this culture. It's the vulnerability of women in this culture. I mean, if you're a widow in this culture, it's over. And, and the Greeks would basically let widows just go to nothing. So the fact that Christians took care of widows was huge, huge, that they, they actually watched them. I mean, you, th this is something I don't think we realize. You know, we think our cities are bad. You should have gone to Rome or any of these cities in the first century. You took your life in your hands at night. Everything shut down at night. You didn't go out. And a woman who was a widow, who was left alone, destitute, no, you know, that Christians took care of them was a huge statement to that culture of their mercy and compassion. And so that, I think, applies to women in general. So I, I mean, I think the point is, in the first century culture, women were incredibly vulnerable. And the fact that 
that they were witnessing to the gospel in such a way, especially in a context in which they were persecuted, Peter's saying, take care of them, husbands. Yes, sir. Flesh, yeah. In your weakness, yeah, that's right. And it's, it, I don't know if it's just physical, it's our humanity, you know? And when you see Jesus on the cross, you see his humanity that's beaten. He dies. That's pretty weak. I mean, that's why we don't want to separate the natures. We say God died, Jesus died. That's as weak as it gets, then that's as dark as it gets, and it doesn't get any darker than the cross. Yes, Sam. Um, you mentioned uh, how different some of these instructions would have been according to the household codes at that time. Right. I'm just guessing it probably was very unusual to even give the instruction to submit directly to a woman as opposed to saying, men, sure, your wives submit to you, which he doesn't. Right. That, that could be true. I don't know that because I, I didn't study enough of this to, to actually look at any Hellenistic codes. But you might be right, and your instincts there might be very right. And that would be interesting to look up. And I, there's, I mean, there's 60 pages on this text that I didn't get to all of it, frankly. But I, but it, it, I think you could be very right on that. But I don't know that for sure. Yes, way back. Yeah, I do. I think I do. No, no, you're not, don't, yeah, I mean, it, this is a big question. <laughs> I mean, this is about why does Jesus have to become human, really? I mean, that's the... Let me, let, me, let, let, me, let me answer it this way, and this may not, may not satisfy, but I'll, I only have a minute or two. One of the, I mean, what you're, re, what you're really asking is why the incarnation? Why does Jesus have to come into the world as a human being? And you're talking about the humiliation. Why does Jesus not... No, no. And so what I'm saying is, so when they're talking about the woman's weakness, is that not also in a derogatory Very good. I think that's very, very well said. I totally agree with that. I think that's absolutely right. 
And I think what you, I mean, in terms of what you're asking about the incarnation is, you know, we are weak as human beings because we are infected with this virus. I, I just love that language. We have sin. We're fallen. We have original sin. And we are not fully human. And so Jesus, by becoming one of us, shows us what true, full humanity is, which is as God created us to be in the garden without sin. And Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. There's your choice. He chooses that because that's the means by which he redeemed. And that's why he allows himself to, to go into the state of humiliation. The incarnation is not an expression of the humiliation, but he chooses the humiliation as a means of redeeming us. And that's, that's the, the only way in which, at least the Trinity, in terms of the way in which it's recorded in scriptures, describes what the means of salvation is, that he has to identify with us in every way except without sin. And his weakness kills him by allowing himself to become sin for us. So I think you're right. I think that's a very nice way of thinking about it. Uh-oh, my son. <laughs> All right, Nick, you, I don't want to have to say you get the last word. <laughs> You know, I, this, is, this is pretty good. It's my kid. <laughs> you know, I actually started thinking about that, but I never got there. And, you, and I think you brought it up. Now, that would be something that I think the vicar and the pastor can talk about this week, and pastor can perhaps bring that. But that is not a bad idea. I think there is. Now, now the reason why that's not a bad idea is that when you look at Paul, this is how Paul runs at it. So Paul talks about Christ and his church when he uses, and he doesn't use the same language as Peter, which is really interesting, but it's the same kind of ideas. And when he talks about church and, and Christ, he talks about it in, in that way. And, you know, Peter and Paul, what, what is their relationship in this? And that would be an interesting thought, especially the way in which he divides it, wives and husbands. And what I'm saying is I don't know the answer to that. I, and I'd have to think about that a lot, but thank you for that. Was there any other Fine, anybody? Okay. Well, you were very kind to me. Thank you very much. And it, this was a delight. And actually, I'm very grateful to Pastor Bruzik because now I, I know I needed to handle this passage in our program of women deaconess. And now I've, I've, I've done some preliminary things. So this is a very good thing. And it's, it's just, I, I tell you, it's wonderful to study this. I, I thank you because I had a great time yesterday morning getting this ready. Do you close with prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all.